Hello, I'm Gavin Giovannoni. I'm a neurologist in London and I'm doing this uh, MSLV podcast on the day of the first consultant NHS strike. And I thought I'd do something completely different uh, and uh, give you my view of the future of MS management and the implications of this uh, strike for healthcare. Um, I was this morning uh, why I was at work and shouldn't I be on strike. Uh, and I think it's important to say because I work for a university, I'm actually employed by the university. I'm not employed by the NHS. We weren't uh, balloted and hence we don't have the legal right to be on strike. <clears throat> Um, this doesn't mean to say I'm not supporting my colleagues. Uh, I'm particularly in support of my junior uh, colleagues, um, particularly the, the uh, trainee doctors who have really had a raw deal um, and some of the new appoint newly appointed uh, consultants. Um, I feel a little bit but, uh, ambivalent about myself and my generation uh, of consultant colleagues because we are in quite a different position. Anyway, the reasons why the NHS consultants are striking is well rehearsed, uh, and I've actually uploaded a open letter, um, an open letter to Steve Barclay, the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care, written by the consultants at Dorset, uh, and you can download this letter for yourself if you want to read it, <laughs> and it highlights why the consultant body is so frustrated with the government and the current state of affairs. Way I uh, have a little bit of a disagreement with them is that they don't really go down into what's happening to new, into the medicine. And I personally think there's this race to the bottom happening and it's happening quite quickly. And what we don't realize is that the democratization of knowledge with internet and information technology, the development of artificial intelligence, and the commodification of healthcare and wellness. In other words, you can often buy a lot of healthcare now from uh, multiple providers, not just the NHS, means that the medical profession is not the only show in town. There's competition, you know. And I think the British Medical Association realizes that we are not the only show in town. They should realize it. And there are plans to even uh, attack the medical profession in the sense that there's this plan to shorten medical school curricula. So in other words, you can now go from, I trained for six years at the current, um, my medical school's five years and they want to make it four years. They want to also create medical apprenticeships so you can actually train, uh, get your degree while you're training and working. They want to increase the number of physician assistants so these people are not trained to the same level as consultants but still can work as um, consultants in a certain narrow area. And they also want to bring on um, a whole lot of new training posts under these new shortened curricula. So there's this dumbing down or race to the bottom of medical expertise. Um, um, so I think the era of highly paid, highly qualified healthcare professionals is ending and this is probably what's driving a lot of the erosion of pay and the working conditions and I think the UK, the UK government is saying to us that we are dispensable or well, at least the highly trained uh, ones are dispensable in that in the future we're not going to need you. This position is quite dangerous yeah, because there's going to be a time lag and I don't know how long that time lag is before uh, healthcare is 
revolutionize. And I say revolutionize because this is a revolution. It's going to be quite rapid, I think. It's not going to happen over generations. It's going to happen over, you know, two, three, five years maybe that we're going to find it, uh, a change in the way we practice medicine and neurology. So this question is, are we dispensable? And I have a little doubt that the neurological examination and its interpretation will be done much more efficiently by objective tests and AI algorithms interpreting these tests, and we may become obsolete in that sense. Similarly, when it comes to ordering and interpreting investigations, uh, AI algorithms will be much better than us because they'll have much more data, much more experience from the data than we have. Um I mean, AI is really beginning to do some relatively simple tasks. You know, for example, checking e-prescriptions for errors and drug interactions. This is a common problem, uh, but yet we don't have it in our NHS systems. Yeah, it's becoming to be implemented at, I think, a general practitioner level. But why don't we have the background checks on prescribing to make sure we're not doing things incorrectly? I mean, this is something very simple that could be and should have been implemented ages ago. And the other thing is just uh, the automatic interpretation of blood results. You know, why aren't our algorithms flagging and querying diagnoses based on patterns of blood results? Uh, you know, we have to interpret the bloods ourselves. And I think that's ridiculous when we've got the technology available already. You know, we, uh, the blood results could pick up things like iron deficiency. They could pick up things like potential leukemia. Um, potential myeloma, they could pick up things like Addison's disease, which gives you a characteristic pattern on blood results. The systems don't do that already, and I just find it bizarre that we haven't adopted intelligent expert systems to do some simple things which makes it safer for patients. Um, what about other things like checking the retina? So the back of the eye, it's quite a skilled, uh, it's, it's quite a complicated skill it takes decades really to be, get very good at looking at the retina you know and we now have um, ophthalmoscopes and microscopes that take photographs of the retina that don't need human input to be honest with you um, and just take one simple thing looking for swelling of the what we call the optic disc the back of the eye where the optic nerve goes into the eye it's called papilledema and when it's swelling it means that there's raised pressure within the brain raised intracranial pressure and this is a really critical finding that needs urgent medical attention and we already have data from numerous studies that ai interpreting retinal photographs are much better than ophthalmologists at interpreting the images and flagging up potential pathologies so the question is why, and these have been validated uh, in some healthcare systems now, they're beginning to use retinal imaging and AI to interpret, uh, for example, look for uh, diabetic retinopathy, disease of the retina in diabetics. And so instead of ophthalmologists doing it, the first uh, phase is done by an artificial intelligence system looking at the retinal photographs. Why haven't we adopted that in NHS practice yet? You know, this is something that could make our lives as practicing neurologists much better. And I think most of us will have very little problem identifying an admin need uh, that I could fill. Uh, the bigger issue will be getting that technology not only validated, but into the NHS workflow. In other words, it becomes part of our routine day-to-day -day care. And I think this is quite difficult when our healthcare system is pretty antiquated in terms of how it's designed face-to-face -face consultations in hospitals, etc. We're going to have to rethink how healthcare is delivered. I think the COVID pandemic really alluded to us how we can change things by having asynchronous or virtual consultations. That's just the tip of the iceberg about how healthcare is going to change. 
And I think uh, the BMA should realize that, uh, and my colleagues should realize that the reason why the government is reluctant to interact with us because they see, they have a vision for how healthcare is going to evolve. And it's going to evolve into a, a system where consultants are going to have much lower, much lower status and less of a role to play in the delivery of healthcare. And we just have to realize that. So this brings up this issue of artificial intelligence, and I have written about this on a on a, on a medium post of you know about six to twelve months ago, and I uh, want to put it out to you that artificial intelligence is here and it's yet to stay, and it's going to get better and better and better. And I remember arguing back in the nineties with a colleague of mine um, that AI will take over a lot of our our role in medicine, and he disagreed with me because he always thought that the analog human intelligence would always be superior. Uh, he may have changed his position now, uh, but it's virtually impossible not to pick up a newspaper, watch a television program, or read a magazine that doesn't talk about the role of AI in uh, in uh, human endeavors. Um, uh, people aren't people still are arguing about how good AI can become. But I want to take a reductionist approach to this to explain myself. And the English love using the idiom, you know, he or she or they can't see the forest for the trees. And I don't think this is right. I think we should flip it around and say they can't see the trees for the forest. In other words, focusing on the big picture means they've missed the fundamental insight that comes from the details. And the argument I'm going to make is a reductionist approach to explain uh, what I mean using philosophy in terms of information technology. Some of you may have done mathematics at school or university and understand Boolean logic. So Boolean logic is, you know, yes and no, black and white, zeros and ones. And we have to appreciate there are alternative numbering systems to what we call the decimal or base 10 system. Uh, we have the binary, which is zero and ones, and we have the hexadecimal, which is base 16, that are commonly used, in, which are used in computer science, and people know about them. And there are other numbering systems. There's the uh, quinary or base five system, which was used uh, by ancient tribes in South America. They used to use knots and strings using base five. And historians will tell us that uh, the base five and base ten systems dominate human history because of the fact that we have five fingers on each hand, or ten fingers when we combine them. So that's why. You know, we're embedded in counting systems that use 10, 5 or 10. But the question I ask you is, is there any difference between whatever counting system you use, be it binary, triplet code, quaternary code, uh, or decimal code, in terms of its potential as a storage of data? And I've actually given you examples using base 10, base 2, base 3, and base 4. Um, they, they look very different uh, on, the, on the newsletter, but they are telling you exactly the same thing in terms of information storage. Um, so they are equivalent to each other. And this is the fundamental insight because they are doing what numbering systems do. They capture information and they store it. Okay. And the implications for this uh, is profound because – uh, it's how we define intelligent life or how do we uh, define sentience, for example, or the capacity to solve problems. 
And I think these debates are about the forest. If you look at the trees, you'll realize that biological life, so what creates biological life, is based on a quaternary or base four. So DNA code uses four symbols. And that's interpreted into using three of those into RNA. So DNA goes into RNA, then it goes into proteins. So it uses a triplet code at the RNA level and a quaternary code at the DNA level. And that defines life. That defines how proteins and other molecules are, in, uh, are formed. And these all generate uh, metabolism and biological life. So from a reductionist perspective, you know, biological life is pretty simple. It's just code. It's information. And all this code and information creates uh, on the platform, which the platform is biology, creates complexity, analog complexity that we see around us. So my definition of life is information technology. It's code. So why then would digital life be any different? So digital life is currently based on binary codes, zero and one, and that's how we use digital. That's how we define digital code. And so if you give it sufficient time and selection pressure, it will evolve. A little doubt that binary code will evolve into something as complex as biological life. So digital algorithms will become as complicated as analog biological algorithms in terms of achieving an aim, you know, completing a task, for example. So I think digital life, algorithms, AI, whatever you want to call it, will eventually develop the necessary complexity to become sentient, uh, if it has not done so already, and to complete almost all tasks humans do at present. Uh, and I think that will include the practice of medicine. Um, uh, however, I find very few people want to accept this insight. And the question I asked why, and my, my opinion is it's obvious, and uh, many algorithms I interact with daily, you know, really have the murmurings of early sentience in terms of their interaction with you, you know, via digital platforms. And they're clearly superior to humans at doing specific tasks. There's lots of digital apps or applications that are much better than us at remembering things, achieving things, etc. Even even creative tasks now, some of them are uh, as good as us in terms of creating art, for example. Or design, you know, designing buildings, giving certain parameters. So we've got to appreciate that we are moving into an era where we're going to see more and more um, digital platforms taking on roles. And I, I've put up a YouTube video for you. You may want to catch up with Blake Lemoyne. Uh, he was a Google engineer who claimed that Lambda, which was uh, one of Google Google's AI engines, was sentient. And Google actually fired this. Uh, um, engineer for um, um, seeing the trees for the forest actually and it's worthwhile listening to his interview on on YouTube because it ex explains how complicated the, and how uh, uh, topical this, this issue is Anyway, downstream of the issue of sentience is mortality. So evolution has built into biological life, aging and death and they do that for a reason, okay you need to have death uh, so you can actually get the next generation that's been selected to supersede it and improve on it. And I think death has to be an essential feature for evolution. And actually, we built uh, that into our biology, into our digital systems already. There are very few algorithms that survive long. They always get improved on, and the previous ones uh, uh, become extinct, essentially. 
just have to look at operating systems on computers to appreciate this. Um, <clears throat> anyway, if you want to get into this, one of my favorite movies is The Blade Runner. Um, you know, it came out in 1982, and it's about biological clones or replicants. Uh, and, uh, you know, embedded in the storyline uh, is what we're discussing. You know, the replicants were sentinel or digital beings, uh, and they were, uh, you know, built into them was the ability to age, uh, and they were mortal. Uh, and knowing that they could live forever um, um, would be depressing. Uh, and I think the whole movie is about these replicants um, that go rogue, um, about facing their mortality. And I suppose we as humans do the same thing. Um, anyway, one of my favorite quotes from the movie, I've put up also a little YouTube clip, is from uh, Roy Batty. He was a replicant and he was portrayed by Rutger Hauer in The Blade Runner. And uh, the quote goes, I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watch sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tannhauser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time like tears in rain. Time to die. Anyway, it's a very touching uh, soliloquy from the movie. Uh, and it kind of captures this gray area between biological analog life and digital you know, uh, life. Anyway, it's based on um, a book uh, um, called Androids, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? And I suppose we're going to have to start asking ourselves at some point, do AI engines or AI algorithms dream? And I think maybe they do when you see some of the outputs that have come from ChatGTP. And do they have the capacity to experience feelings and sensation? Uh, and I suppose uh, the next question is, can artificial intelligence algorithms fall in love. So this is all philosophical questions. Uh, for me, the answer is obvious, or at least will be obvious in the future. Now, getting down to what MSL is about, when it comes to the management or the self-management of MS, I think the answer will is also obvious. It's only a matter of time, I think, before I, as a neurologist, become obsolete and digital algorithms and robots take over my role uh, in helping you manage your MS. You might agree uh, or you may disagree. Um, I think um, on the flip side, though, is that by the time this dystopian view of uh, neurology, medicine, and MS management emerges, we may by then have licensed EVV vaccines that prevent MS. And the question I ask myself is, dare I dream? And I think I should dream. You know, I should have a vision, I think, of what the future looks like in terms of the management of MS. And I'm hoping that by the time the practice of medicine evolves to where I'm obsolete, we have that, we can prevent MS. So going back to this particular strike, uh, whoever wins the strike uh, or a, a negotiated group compromise is reached, it won't stop the rise of the robots. You know, I think we should be asking ourselves is how soon robots will be competent in helping uh, you manage your MS without input from a trained neurologist or healthcare professional. You know, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you don't want to want help from a robot in managing your MS, but I suspect you're not going to have much choice in that. I suspect it's going to be driven by politics and market forces. But if you want to uh, join in the debate, please do. Anyway, um, enjoy. And if you have any queries, please ask. Um, and let's have a discussion around this really important topic, the evolution of healthcare systems and the role medical professionals play in it.